New details about a suspected child predator. It often starts as an innocent engagement. Why it's not the first time he's been in trouble with the law. A stalker operating in secret. It's just also creepy because, like, who else is this person doing it to? How she found out she was being followed. And Vancouver's NHL hub city dream. That involves a modification to the quarantine plan. Why Dr. Bonnie Henry is giving it a green light. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We have new details tonight about a Burnaby man charged with sexual assault against a girl he met online. The Crown refused to release the suspect's name on Tuesday, but today it relented. Jordan Armstrong now with more on what we're learning about the man arrested. Sheldon James Loney remains in custody. The Burnaby man in his late 20s is accused of befriending a child online, arranging to meet her and sexually assaulting her. The girl and her mother reported the alleged crime early last month. In the morning, say goodbye, boo. A man with the exact same name as the accused happens to be a freestyle rapper who goes by the stage name Hydro 604. His YouTube page is full of music videos, many featuring words we cannot broadcast. On his Instagram page, May 29th, the rapper posted a letter to his fans from his jail cell. It reads in part, I'm not the monster the media portrays me to be, nor are the allegations they make about me true. Court records show a Sheldon James Loney pleaded guilty five years ago to befriending teenage girls online and engaging in sex acts, some of which he recorded on video. For that, Loney was sentenced to less than two years behind bars. He was also given two years probation. However, the judge denied a request from Crown to limit Loney's contact with minors, believing he was low risk to reoffend. Meantime, in a separate matter, Surrey RCMP are out with a fresh warning for parents. They say online child pornography cases have more than doubled in the last three years. They're urging parents to keep an open dialogue with their kids and to report any suspicious activity. We really want to be mindful and check in with kids. What are they doing when they're alone with electronic devices? And, and you know, they may, you know, they're not doing anything wrong as a kid by going on an iPad. But the sad and unfortunate part is that there are people who seek to exploit opportunities with children um, when they are alone, when they are not uh, under supervision, and they'll take those opportunities to engage with children and groom them into behavior they might not otherwise engage in. Sheldon James Loney, the accused in Burnaby, is scheduled to make his next court appearance June 25th in Vancouver. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A Vancouver woman is warning others to be aware of their surroundings after finding pictures and video of herself posted online without her knowledge and for sale. Sarah McDonald now on how posting public images of others online isn't illegal and what you can do to protect yourself. They're undeniably unsettling and downright creepy, but voyeuristic videos like these aren't criminal. I believe it was a guy that was following me. Much to the dismay of the woman in them, Amanda Gieschen, filmed in and around Vancouver without even knowing it. This person is taking photos of whoever, whenever, and he's making money off it, which just seems so wrong. Gieschen thinks the footage was captured last summer, but she only discovered it existed at all last week. Posted on a popular social media site and a separate website, where Gieschen says videos of her and other women captured covertly across the Lower Mainland were being sold. 
Once I got onto the website, I saw, I believe, 66 collections of photos just all over the lower mainland that someone has taken without their consent. And they're really creepy shots. It may surprise you to learn that behavior is actually legal. Anyone in any public place is fair game when it comes to being captured on camera. So when does it go from creepy to criminal harassment? Vancouver police say it's a fine line. It's a very fine line. Uh, and it is very creepy for someone to have to, to go through that to find their pictures online, uh, especially possibly in a sexual manner or against their permission. But taking photographs in public isn't illegal. That's because the criminal definition of voyeurism in Canada largely revolves around nudity and privacy, though it does include recording subjects for sexual purposes. I just think it's wrong and I, we should not feel uncomfortable and we shouldn't have to worry about people that are doing this. As for this footage, it's being reported to police, though it's still up online, despite Gishin's efforts to get it scrubbed from social media. Videos. For now, the one thing she can control is getting the words and the warning out to others. Sarah McDonald, Global News. BC's top doctor, Bonnie Henry, has now given the green light to Vancouver's proposal to become an NHL hub city. That news comes as we learn BC has 12 new cases today for a total now of 2,680. Once again, no new deaths, so that number stays at 167. Hospitalizations are down four, with 12 people remain, remaining in hospital, four of whom are in ICU. 2,328 people are considered fully recovered, leaving us with 185 active cases. Now let's get to the news that has hockey fans buzzing. BC's top doctor now signing off on the plan that could see Vancouver used as an NHL hub city. The Premier confirmed the news today and Keith Baldry has more on the tweaks to BC's quarantine rules to get players back on the ice. The Vancouver Canuck proposal for an NHL hub city has been approved by the public health officer, Dr. Henry, and our government. Shoots, kicked out, rebound, Pearson scores! It's a major step forward in efforts to convince the NHL to choose Vancouver as one of its hub host cities where pro hockey can resume operations. A formal plan is now in place and it has the backing of Dr. Bonnie Henry. It involves a modification to the quarantine plan that would allow a team to be a family entity or a bubble. And so those individuals within that organization would stay together in one hotel. They would travel to the Rogers Arena together in private uh, transportation. Any testing would be the responsibility of the club. No interaction with the public would take place. The plan is a joint effort of the government, public health and the Vancouver Canucks. It has strict quarantine and testing protocols and even Tourism BC is involved. I'm going to be on my couch watching the games regardless, whether they're in Vegas or Vancouver. But I really believe that British Columbia has a great deal to offer the NHL, particularly the players. If you were bringing your family to somewhere in North America for the summer months to spend time while you played hockey, I can't think of a better place than British Columbia. Premier Horgan says it's now up to the NHL to make the call. The rising number of COVID-19 cases south of the border and a rising tide of social unrest there may tip the scales in favour of Canadian cities hosting NHL games. 
people are satisfied that British Columbians together have worked hard to make sure that our individual and our community and our provincial health is first and foremost. So we're not moving away from that for one second. And I think that should give more confidence to the NHL that we take this very seriously. We love our hockey in British Columbia. We welcome the NHL to come here and it's up to them to make that choice. A lot of people are hoping they do. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with more from the Premier's update today. Keith, uh, NHL taken care of in that announcement, but also mm. some good news for people who play amateur sports today. Yeah, a lot of people are really hoping to get going on the amateur sports scene. Soccer clubs, uh, Little League Baseball may be late, but maybe they can resume as well. Uh, but some of the sports organizations have been nervous about potential lawsuits. Today, the uh, Premier announcing a cabinet order has been passed to Sports groups facing litigation from lawsuits arising out of uh, potential association with COVID due to athletic activities. And the Premier walked everybody through some pretty impressive numbers of potentially the number of people who could be impacted. 72 different provincial sport organizations, over 4,100 local sport organizations, and over 800,000 youth and adults who participate in amateur sports will not have to worry about litigation as a result of COVID-19. I think that's great news to get people outside, to get them back engaged in sport. I very much look forward to hearing the crack of the bat at the local ball diamond down around the corner from my place in Luxton and seeing youngsters and old timers participating in physical activity. So the question is, when will that activity resume? The Premier today dropping the date June 12th, a Saturday, as a time when soccer can begin with Kids League. So hopefully we're going to see those playing fields uh, filled up pretty quickly by young people playing sports, whether it's Little League Baseball, soccer, or a number of others. You know they're itching for it. All right, thanks very much, Keith. It's one of Vancouver's must-see tourist attractions, but now the once-bustling Granville Island is practically deserted. As Aaron MacArthur reports, with no timeline on when travel restrictions will be lifted, this is just one of many suffering tourism hotspots grappling with how to recover. A dreary day at the sandbar, the so-called lunch rush, eerily quiet. The restaurant reopened last week with reduced hours and at 50% capacity. Not really sustainable in the long term. We employ about 150 staff. Without tourism, without the Arts Club Theatre, without a lot of the attractions that bring people to the island, um, it's been difficult. Granville Island as a whole has been hit hard by COVID-19. The market amongst the busiest tourist destinations in the province. Some people are predicting business won't recover for another 18 months. I would say 70% of the people that come to Granville Island are from outside the province of British Columbia. Granville Island reliant on tourists, but so is the province as a whole. And with talks underway to extend the border closure with the U.S. until the end of July, the scope of the lost opportunity is daunting. In 2019, more than 6.3 million tourists crossed the border into B.C., more than half staying at least one night. The estimated overnight expenditure from those people topped $2.9 billion. We should take advantage of it ourselves this summer to try and fill some of that gap. But I'm under no illusion uh, we will not be able to replace the countless travelers that come from the U.S. and internationally. The answer on Granville Island is easy more people. Oh, probably 10 times the number of visitors that we have right now coming down to the island. I mean, it's, it's literally going to take that. And if that isn't going to be from international visits, then it needs to be locals. 
Granville Island business owners hopeful it will be enough. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Three years after a stunt performer died on the set of Deadpool 2 in downtown Vancouver, her death has been ruled accidental. The coroner's report on her death found 40-year-old Joy Harris died of blunt force trauma to her head after she lost control of her motorcycle and crashed through a window at Shaw Tower. She was not wearing a helmet. Last month, WorkSafe BC announced the production company had been fined $300,000 for safety violations in relation to the deadly crash. The growing number of people living in a parking lot next to Crab Park on the Vancouver waterfront have been given 72 hours to leave. As Rumina Dea reports, a B.C. Supreme Court justice has granted an injunction to have the estimated 180 campers now occupying the site removed. Over 180 residents and counting at the illegal tent city have 72 hours to pack up and leave. The injunction granted in BC Supreme Court. I think it was worth it. I mean, is the judge going to take me in? Where am I supposed to go? He's not given us any options. He's just told us what we can't do. I'm greatly disappointed in the judge's decision. He has a home to go to tonight. I don't. Despite the defendant's claims, Chief Justice Hinkson says alternative housing is available, as it was when the Oppenheimer Park Tent City was dismantled. The judge says encampment residents are trespassing by occupying the Port Authority's property. This means we've got to pack up and go somewhere else. I mean, someone else's backyard. You don't want us here, we'll go to another backyard. We're not going to give up until you get us homes. Hinkson noted the recent overdose death of someone at the tent city, where there is no running water and only two portable toilets. The judge has concerns about social distancing, adding there have been 73 complaints by area residents about used needles, defecation, urination, garbage, etc., etc. It's not a place to live in a park, but... Uh... What can you do? I mean, somebody has to do something about that. Homeless people in general don't have a place to go. We don't have enough housing for people. We don't have enough mental health care. Hinkson told the court the police have a duty to uphold the current order. He did not grant the VPD's request for an additional enforcement order, saying it's not necessary because this is not an extraordinary case. I don't think the people are going to move. If people want to leave, go leave. That's their choice. If they want to stay, they're going to stay. You know, what are we going to have? Police brutality in Vancouver? The deadline to vacate Saturday afternoon. The VPD says it will act on the court's decision, but gave no details as to what action will be taken. Romina Dea, Global News. The Black Lives Matter movement is a day of reckoning for many institutions, including Simon Fraser University and its athletic programs. Even though the Klan has Scottish roots, why there's pressure to change the name in just over a minute. One of the most famous movies gone from HBO. How the Black Lives Matter movement is affecting entertainment coming up on the NewsHour. And a drone captures one of the planet's most amazing natural wonders just off the coast of Australia. That's coming up later as well. Right now, though, the brother of George Floyd was in Washington, D.C. today making a passionate plea for change. I can't tell you the kind of pain you feel when you watch something like that. 
when you watch your big brother who you looked up to your whole entire life die, die begging for his mom, I'm tired. I'm tired of pain. Pain you feel when Felonis Floyd delivered that emotional testimony before the House Judiciary Committee, urging them to listen to what black communities across the U.S. are saying right now and what they're asking for. Floyd's testimony comes just a day after he laid his older brother to rest in an emotional ceremony in Houston. We have an update now on growing calls for body cameras on B.C. police officers. On Tuesday, we heard from the mother of Miles Gray, who died during a violent confrontation with Vancouver police in 2015. The province's police watchdog forwarded the case to the B.C. Prosecution Service 16 months ago, but Gray's mother says she still doesn't know what happened. She believes if the police had been wearing body cameras, there would be more certainty. The Independent Investigations Office also supports the use of body cameras. The VPD says it still has reservations, but would consider the change. We've looked into body cameras uh, since 2012 and as recently as 2018. At the time, it was cost prohibitive for us to do this. Uh, People are talking about budgets, funding. Uh, It is a substantial cost to look at body-worn cameras. Uh, Having said that, we're not opposed to uh, doing continued research and looking into to see if we can implement this in the future. As thousands continue to gather internationally to denounce anti-black racism and police brutality, years of research on police funding is being presented to decision makers across North America. As Global's Morgan Campbell reports, experts say now is the time to act. And we need many voices against racism and against brutality. Anti-black racism is in the forefront in North America is seeing a shift in the response on both sides of the border. It has to move now from taking a knee to taking a stand. Policies are not made on pavements and sidewalks. Experts say one way to do that is to change how police forces are funded and by investing in social services. How do we then resource professionals like social workers, uh, service service providers, family advocates to respond to those calls so that we have better community outcomes and less negative police interaction. These discussions are happening in Toronto, Vancouver, New York, and Minneapolis. It's a shift in the dynamic that Black Lives Matter Canada has supported for several years. A number of different measures of defunding the police have already been put in place in different places all over the world, and so we can learn from those places and get started right away. Protests in Canada, the U.S., and across Europe are capturing international headlines calling for the end of anti-black racism and police brutality. It's that type of action, you know, with respect to how we're actually going to address these issues. Deborah Thompson is an expatriate living in Ohio. Growing up in Oshawa, she has experienced racism professionally and personally. I was brought up with the understanding that black people have to work twice as hard to get half as much. And so I did. Unfortunately, this is a story told too often. Sasha Ann Simmons has worked in newsrooms in both Canada and the U.S. As a black woman just doing her job, she says it has been stressful from a personal and professional standpoint. I've had to take significant breaks from the work because um, I've taken it. It's it's so near and dear and so 
close to my heart. It appears people now more than ever are seeking solutions to ending systematic racism that still exists in both Canada and the U.S. Morgan Campbell, Global News. The Chilliwack School District is apologizing for one of its schools hosting a racially insensitive fundraiser a few years back. An Instagram account run by the website Black Vancouver posted photos from a Rosedale Middle School yearbook about the school's slave day, where some students were auctioned off as slaves to raise money for the school. While the exact year of the event happened isn't clear, in a letter posted on the school's website, the district's interim superintendent says it was just as wrong then as it is today and apologizes unreservedly. Well, the debate over SFU's team name is heating up again. The clan, with a C, is a tribute to the school's Scottish heritage. But of course, just the sound of it carries an entirely different meaning south of the border. And as Grace Key reports, that's where SFU's athletes regularly compete. Simon Fraser University's team name, The Clan, can conjure up different images depending on which side of the border you're from. One professor who's pushing for a name change says it's a problem for student-athletes who travel to the United States. Our student-athletes who play under this team name in the United States undergo racist taunts and racist harassments. They have other student-athletes who try and pick fight, fights with them because of the disrespectful nature of the name as it's perceived in the United States. The nickname Clan spelled with a C, honors indigenous Scottish traditions. Over the years, athletes and coaches have had to explain it has nothing to do with the white supremacist group, the Ku Klux Klan. In light of the current Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, Anderson believes it's important to have this discussion once again. And this is also a really good time for us to see how culturally inappropriate that name is in the U.S. context. So I think that what's going on in the U.S. right now means that we really have to sort of look in the face uh, what this name means there. A statement from SFU reads, We are aware that some have mistakenly made associations between our Scottish nickname and the Ku Klux Klan. The university is deeply troubled by and attentive to the emotions and concerns to which these associations have given rise, particularly in light of our revulsion to and condemnation of anti-black racism. A review process has been underway for several months within the university to provide the basis for a decision on this difficult issue. Even though it might mean something different in Canada, that's what it means in the U.S. And it is to the United States that we send our student-athletes to play their games. Student-athletes were asked last spring if SFU should initiate a process to change the team name. 77% of those who responded said yes. Now the Klan, formerly the Klan's men, could be looking at another change. Grace Key, Global News. Up next, how money launderers got away with it for so long. The communication breakdown exposed at the Cullen Commission. Also, tonight's shop owners wigging out after yet another break-in. This one caught on camera as well. Eastbound traffic is still in recovery mode over here on the Mary Hill Bypass after an earlier closure due to a three-car crash. It has been since reopened, but the volume remains. When you buy a lottery ticket or play at a casino in BC, our healthcare schools and community programs benefit. BCLC, with every play, you're making BC even better. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above the Mary Hill Bypass. The confluence of crime and technology has created the most plugged-in criminals ever. At the Cullen Commission today, experts in the field of intelligence and money laundering testified that those sophisticated criminals used British Columbia as a gateway for crime.
And as John Watt tells us, our antiquated resources were no match to combat the problem. Brazen violence, fatal overdoses, and bags of dirty cash leaving a stain on British Columbia. All part of a well-connected criminal underworld with links across the globe and throughout Canada as well. Their proceeds of crime are crossing multiple policing jurisdictions as they have either interprovincial or uh, intraprovincial links. But as the criminals find new ways to connect, Canada's intelligence experts warn methods of sharing information are stuck in the past. The system is uh, close to 40 years old and we are working hard at CISC to plan for a new uh, system. The Cullen Commission exploring money laundering in B.C. being told a new central intelligence database should automatically copy relevant police reports. There's a lot of information out there and there could be a lot of gaps um, based on the fact that there is no formal um, mechanism in place to ensure that all of our agencies are sharing with us. In some cases, information is shared by law enforcement in the beginning with little or no follow-up. We have no way of knowing what we're missing. As British Columbia becomes a hub for organized crime, hiring skilled criminal intelligence analysts has been a struggle. I'm not going to lie, part of the issue is that uh, our where we're located has no parking, and a lot of people don't want to come and work somewhere where they can't park and come into work. Whether it's potential hires being put off by having to find parking, or a decades-old central database, Canada's intelligence community needs a major modern upgrade in order to really close in on money laundering and a connected criminal underworld. John Hua, Global News. Vancouver police are appealing to the public for information after dozens of wigs were stolen from a hair salon near City Square Mall. It happened at 6 o'clock in the morning, June 3rd, at Joel Hair Salon on Camby Street. Surveillance video shows a suspect using a large rock to break the glass door of the shop. Another suspect follows him in and the pair start collecting the wigs, hair toppers and extensions. They stole more than $45,000 worth of products, some of it intended for people with cancer. The salon was also targeted by thieves a week before the pandemic began. A lot of our clients are going through uh, chemotherapy treatment or have alopecia or different ailments that require, um, you know, a wig or other options. And so for us, you know, to have been closed and then to just be reopening and having to get through the last few months, barely, barely making it through to have this happen now has just been really upsetting for us. The suspects took off in a white van with the license plate covered up. Anyone with information is being asked to call the VPD property crime unit. Still to come, celebrating BC innovators. And when the pandemic hit, our business stopped. The first in our series, Believe BC, and what this hair company did to survive the COVID crisis. Also tonight, how hospitals are handling the problem of patients who wander away. Traffic is looking pretty good as it usually does over here these days at the Massey Tunnel. No need for counterflow today. Two lanes north and two lanes south and minimal delays between Richmond and Delta. Bank securely from anywhere, anytime with CIBC, whether it's paying bills, depositing checks or transferring money in Canada and around the world. With CIBC, you can do it all 24-7. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Well, check out this spectacular drone footage taken by Australian researchers near the Great Barrier Reef.
tens of thousands of nesting sea turtles. The breeding colony of green turtles is the largest in the world, and this method of recording them to count their numbers proved the population has been underestimated in the past. And a follow-up to a story we brought you on Tuesday and some good news for Vancouver's Oceanwise Marine Mammal Rescue Centre. Just two days after they launched a campaign to raise enough money to reopen, they've actually surpassed their goal. The centre rehabilitates as many as 200 marine mammals every year, but was facing the grim possibility of not being able to reopen for its busy seal pup season. They launched an Adopt-a-Seal campaign on Monday, hoping to raise $125,000. More than 1,500 donations have already come in from around the world, totaling $157,000. With orphaned and injured pups already in need, the centre hopes to reopen soon. Nearly a full week after walking away from Royal Columbian Hospital, 37-year-old Sean Johnson has now been found safe. But his case is just the latest in a string of disturbing walkaways from the hospital, including one incident that tragically ended with the death of patient Gavin Delois. Catherine Urquhart reports. In recent weeks, at least three patients have gone missing from Royal Columbian Hospital. Gavin Deloise was among them. He walked away from RCH after suffering a head injury in a car crash. Days later, following an extensive search, his body was discovered in a wooded area in Burnaby. Now, a patient advocate who was a nurse at Royal Columbian is speaking out, saying walkaways are common. Our patients wandered away all the time. There were a lot of patients, and, and at Royal Columbian and, and Surrey Memorial are high risk for that. Code yellows are activated when a person considered at risk is found missing. Fraser Health says between January and May of this year, code yellows were activated five times at RCH. Of course, hospitals can't stop everyone from leaving. Some patients are competent and choose to leave against doctor's advice. But Royal Columbian's medical director calls Deloy's death distressing. He's involved in a review of the case. We are uh, you know, reaching out with the families to try to touch base, at least with one of them right now, and, and we'll do the other one this week. And, um, and we're looking at our internal processes. How did that decision make, get made? What were the circumstances? Um, so we're, we're doing a pretty extensive internal reviews around that. When head-injured Gavin Deloise walked out of RCH, his family was not informed. The least they could have done was call us. Patient advocate Connie Jorsvik says hospitals must do more to engage with families. If family had been called in to say, we've got your loved one here, he's had a head injury, it would be great if somebody is with him, um, that person could put the extra set of eyes. The ongoing review by Fraser Health and RCH is expected to take several weeks, but we may never know the outcome. The hospital's medical director says results aren't always made public. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Still ahead, a very heavy hobby. We would see these trundling right by the door like every day. The BC man who just added a tank to his collection. And the first in our series, Believe BC, and how faith is pulling this hair company through the pandemic. This program is brought to you in part by Believe BC. Together is now. 
Tonight, we're launching our Believe BC series, celebrating businesses who've pivoted to meet new demands created by the COVID pandemic. And kicking things off tonight, Ted Chernecki finds out how a hair care company went from salon supplier to sanitizer powerhouse. They didn't see this coming. Those ghostly images of no one on the streets, lockdowns, barbershops and hair salons closed. Been in the hair care business for 30 years and when the pandemic hit, our business stopped. I mean, for the first time ever. This industry has always considered itself basically recession proof. Even in tough times, people would still get their hair cut. Well, as Plato once said, necessity is the mother of invention, and it just so happened that AG hair products had been casually working on a hand sanitizer before the pandemic hit. We looked at the hand sanitizer quite early on. We were, we were working on a formulation in February, um, and it was really to add to our line. We could see that there would be a need. We were, we were working on it slowly. But as the pandemic hit, and as the pandemic hit hard, and as the demand picked up, then we pivoted very, very strongly towards it. The change was fundamental. Just finding enough bottles and pumps when everyone else was looking for them too was an enormous undertaking. But in the past three months, AG Hair has produced two million sanitizers for the general public and health services personnel. We intend to keep producing it. In fact, we're ordering new, new equipment, new machinery, so that we can fill and handle it quicker. Uh, we are adding to the hand sanitizer lineup. The pandemic had revealed a weakness in their business plan. Relying solely on hair products is risky business in a pandemic. It's been incredibly challenging, but it's been incredibly gratifying to see how our people have risen to the challenge and literally accomplished the impossible. So as restrictions are starting to ease and hair salons are reopening, AG Hair is one company that hopes to be leaving this pandemic stronger than it was going into it. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Another sign of the changing times why Gone with the Wind has been temporarily pulled from HBO Max. Coming up right after Christie's forecast. All right, let's check in with meteorologist Christy Gordon now for a look at that forecast. And it's been a, a, a changing picture for the last couple of hours, Christy. Yes, and we've had severe thunderstorms in through the central interior. So let's have a quick look at the warnings that are in place right now. It is for the Caribou region just north of Williams Lake, extending up north of Prince George. So the area you see in red there, the concern right now is a bunch of thunderstorms. It's a line that is tracking towards Highway 97 between Quinell and Prince George. These thunderstorms are in the severe thunderstorm nature. And these are the things that we're concerned about when we talk about severe thunderstorms. So strong wind gusts. Some areas could see gusts up to 80 kilometers an hour. That has the potential of breaking tree branches, even uh, ruining sort of uh, small um, shacks or things like that. Risk of large hail as well as downpours of rain, which could cause flash flooding and then lightning, of course. The rule of thumb is to when, when you hear thunder at all, to head indoors to help protect yourself. So again, we're mainly looking at that Highway 97 area between Quinell and Williams are Quinell and Prince George, and that will be over the next half hour to hour or so. Now, we are going to see conditions ease off over the next uh, overnight, basically. Tomorrow, though, another wave pushing on shore, clouds, showers across the south coast, and even a slight risk of thunderstorms for areas east of Hope into the latter part of the day. So uh, most areas in through the north will see a bit of sunshine in the morning, but increasing cloud. These areas here mainly cloudy. Again, showers and a risk of thunderstorms towards the end 
end of the day. South Coast, we are expecting cloud and showers tomorrow with a high of only 17 degrees. We're going to continue with a similar pattern on Friday as well. Uh, we are going to see mainly um, drier conditions Thursday, but wetter a bit on, on Friday. I'm not sure if you've seen um, the five-day forecast there, if you can let me know. Uh, okay, and there's your weather window there. Your Centra Windows weather window, everyone. That was from yesterday. Some breaks of blue sky through the Fraser Valley. Valley. Thank you so much to Donna for sharing that shot. I love seeing these old barns, rickety old barns. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, if we saw a thunderstorm, a severe one there, that type of a, a shack, as I was mentioning, is susceptible for some damage. Well, All right, guys, back to you. Leaning a little bit, maybe. You're right. All right, thanks very much, Christy. The new streaming service HBO Max has pulled the 1939 classic movie Gone with the Wind. HBO Max says the film, which is set around, uh, around the time of the Civil War, is a product of its time and depicts ethnic and racial prejudices. The service said in a statement, these racist depictions were wrong then and are wrong today. And we felt that to keep this title up without an explanation and a denouncement of those depictions would be irresponsible. HBO Max says the film will return, but with a discussion of its context added. And Squire's up right now with a look ahead to sports. Squire? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> a Great line. line. that movie. But that wasn't the greatest movie of 1939 at all. Wizard of Oz was. Uh, the Whitecaps now know the date. July 8th is when the MLS will start its restart tournament. Oh, it's exciting. And we're, we're getting ready, and we will be ready in game one. It'll be like the World Cup of Soccer. Teams will be broken in the groups and then head down to Disney World in Orlando to play the whole thing. And later, don't be alarmed if you're driving through Lumbee and you see one of these. How this tank found a new home there. We're talking about a different hub city now, yeah, aren't we? not Nanaimo, <laughs> but hopefully Vancouver. Squire? Well, you know... I heard Keith talk about it earlier, and one thing to remember about the hub city bid from Vancouver or NHL, any NHL city, the NHL by itself cannot pick a hub city. That players union would have to agree to it, and with a lot of places in the U.S. still not getting the pandemic under control, the players might feel a lot safer playing here, where numbers are much lower. That's a big plus for Vancouver right now, and that might override the quarantine rules. We don't know everything about the Canucks' plan, but here are some likely parts to it. All games would be played at Rogers Arena. The NHL will not use a non-NHL rink unless it's for practice. And when it comes to practicing, the Scotiabank Barn in Burnaby will be a likely practice facility because it has six NHL-sized rinks and one complex. UBC could also be a possible practice facility as well. Well, Major League Soccer is having its We're Back tournament and it's having it on July 8th in Disney World in Orlando, Florida. All 26 teams are in. They'll be divided into six groups. They'll make those divisions tomorrow. It'll be basically like a World Cup of Soccer format, round-robin games, then a knockout stage. And now that there is a firm date, every MLS team is happy, the Whitecaps included. So it's a good day. It's a very good day. And you see a very, very happy sporting director today. A good day, a good week, and hopefully a healthy couple of months of soccer. Whitecaps now officially preparing for the resumption of the MLS season. 
Caps are off to Orlando, Florida next month for the MLS's back 2016 World Cup style tournament. The first ba- uh, game being very important um, because the first game could put you in a position right away to almost qualify for the round out, uh, knockout round. Um, and then go like that, game by game, knowing that also the, the, the points in the group stage um, allows you to, to also accumulate points for MLS standings. So this is also a, a unique type of format. The Whitecaps plan to stay at home and train at their own facility for as long as possible before traveling to Florida, where the tournament begins July 8th. Once there, teams are guaranteed a minimum of three matches and a maximum of seven if a club makes it to the championship final. Everyone will be tested before leaving for Orlando and then tested every other day once arriving in Florida. As for what happens to matches or the tournament if several players get sick? Uh, There is no specific protocol for how many positive tests uh, would uh, have us take a step back and think about what what happens next. Uh, It's why we're so focused on regular testing. For me to be here and say zero concern, no problem at all, I would be lying. So you should know me by now. Of course, it's a little bit in the back of our heads. And what we believe in is that MLS from now until uh, the first day of the tournament, on first the, until the first day that every team arrives, are going to take all the measurement, all the measures to be as most secure as possible. I agree. I think uh, Mark DeSantos needs more plants in that room. <laughs> Something. <laughs> That'd be nice. The succulent. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Jay Durant for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jay? Thanks, Sophie. We likely won't be seeing any police uniformed or otherwise at Vancouver Pride events this year. The Pride Society says it's removing all law enforcement from its parade and festivals. It's also joining Black Lives Matter and calling for defunding of police. We are speaking with a society member tonight. And the mystery of the missing muzzle dog in Abbotsford is over. A pet detective has solved the case. We'll have those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11. Ooh, intriguing. Thank you. Good to know. Also still to come, the Lumbee front yard that looks like a war zone. That's next. Time to express some gratitude once again to another one of our healthcare heroes stepping up for BC during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tonight's nomination comes from Gabriel Crosby and Michael Sangara. The 10-year-old twin boys and their dad want to recognize their mom and wife, Heather. Heather is a charge nurse in the emergency room at VGH. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, she decided she wanted to help out as much as possible. So she took on full-time hours in the ER. Now, early on, the family considered whether or not Heather should live downstairs. But thankfully, they didn't have to make that move. Instead, Heather undertakes a comprehensive post-work decontamination routine before any hugs or contact. Heather, your boys and your husband say you are their health care hero, and we want to thank you, too, for doubling down in your dedication to B.C. during these weird times. And if you have a health care hero you'd like to see featured on the NewsHour, those of you who are watching and listening, send an email to B.C. Healthcare Heroes at globalnews.ca includes some information about why they are your hero and a few pictures and they might be featured next now a bc man has just added the ultimate conversation starter to his collection of vehicles it's a classic from the 1970s with a ton of horsepower in fact it weighs nearly 60 tons global's travis lowe has the lowdown 
on the tank that's become the talk of the town. This is Al Hale, and this is Al Hale's new ride. It's a bit of a tank. 1973, Chieftain main battle tank Mark 11. Hale got it from a friend in Fort Mac after years of badgering him to sell it. You see, Hale is a collector of sorts. Actually, he doesn't collect sorts. He collects military vehicles. Mainly old British. Because Hale, Hale's from? Guildford. England, that is. So that makes sense, I guess. But this big boy is Hale's first main battle tank, and he's wanted it since he was a little boy when he lived in Borden, a British military base town. We would see these trundling right by the door like every day. When the Chieftain came into service, it was by far the most sophisticated and the most powerful tank in the world, thanks to its 120 millimeter gun. Does the gun work? Uh, no, it's been demilled. Okay, we're not gonna fire it today. No, we're not, unfortunately. In the meantime, Hale is going to restore his Chieftain to mint condition. But first, he has to fix the busted clutch. If it's got nuts and bolts, it can be fixed. What then, you ask, for the Chieftain? Well, don't be silly. Hale is going to drive it down to the pub, of course. Well, we only have one, so it'd be the Blue Ox. So if you're having a pint at the Ox, keep an eye peeled for Al and his Chieftain. Maybe he'll give you a ride. That is, if you can fit in it. Hey, Al, uh, it's really tight in here. How do I get out? Travis Lowe. Al? Global News. Al? Lumby. <laughs> Think he got out of there? Well, I'm sure good question. We'll have to call up to. Can you okay. parallel park that thing? And don't even ask about gas mileage. If it has auto park, <laughs> has the warranty out. run out on it? <laughs> Thanks for watching, everybody. Hope you have a great night. Good night, all. Night.